0: Hi, Diane. Thank you so much for coming on today and taking the time out. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you
1: ate? Sure. I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, uh, and my parents uh, were refugees. They came there in 1949 to um, escape Mao. They They were from China, born and raised. So um, we grew up there because my mother was British and she could um, get into Canada, it being a a part of the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. And so my mother, I think in the beginning, my parents uh, did not know anything about cooking because they had servants uh, in China. But eventually they missed their food and they had to figure out how to make it. So I think they... Um, there were a lot of phone calls with family, and I grew up eating uh, three, oh, maybe four or five kinds of food uh, Iraqi Jewish food, um, Bombay, Baghdadi Jewish dishes, um, Chinese dishes. And my mother loved to make Japanese food as well. And every once in a while, she would t- attempt. Uh, Western food, which uh, she put her own spin on. Sometimes that went well, and sometimes it didn't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what got you interested in food as as something to spend your life focused on?
1: Well, I it took a while to figure out why. Um, but I think what it came down to is that is is because of my parents. They they had a very weird background and they didn't mm-hmm. fit in anywhere. They didn't fit in with the Jewish community and they didn't fit in with the Chinese community because they weren't Chinese. So they um they've they still wanted to express their identity and they expressed it through food. And it was mm-hmm. really, really important to them. There was my mother cooked every day, my father was in charge of, you know, pickling things and making laban, which is the uh, Arab yogurt. Um, So they had a garden um, and it was a major focus of their life. So I think I just took that for granted for a long time. And I didn't really understand that it was also a major focus of mine. Mm -hmm. How did you learn that it was? Uh, it was when I became self-employed. Before I had, you know, a lot of different kinds of jobs as an editor and reporter and feature writer, and um, I just I just worked at different kinds of magazines and newspapers and um, even a book publishing house on whatever topic there was because I was an editor. And then, when I became self-employed, I realized that I had to become uh, an individual contributor. And before, I'd always been a manager, and so I had to figure out what I wanted to write about. <laughs> what I wanted to write about was
0: food, mm-hmm. right? And was- and you, yeah. I, I mean, what wait How? What has made you focus on food for so long? And you know, I, I mean, I, I'm sure we'll discuss this, but food media is not. A really easy or welcoming place, and and you know. So, what has kept you writing about food all this time?
1: Well, I actually I haven't been writing about food that much early in my mm-hmm. career. I I wrote restaurant reviews. I wrote a lot of service pieces. Um, I wrote a column, a recipe column, um, but then because I had such a long career as an editor and I missed working with writers I got more interested in in working with writers so most Mm -hmm. of what I write about is um is how to be a food writer right in all its glorious guises (laughs) and how there are so many parts to it it's there are endless subjects to keep me interested. Food and politics, food and identity, ethics, how to write a good recipe, how to get a book deal, how to make a living, how to grow your blog. Um, it's endless. And mm-hmm. so I've I've never been bored. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And you've just come out with the fourth edition of your book, We'll Write for Food. You know, what has kind of changed in your motivation and your approach to this book since the first edition in 2005? Uh,
1: Well, I started teaching food writing um, at book passage, which is a a big bookstore here in the San Francisco Bay area. And I couldn't find a book on food writing. Uh, So I thought, um, well, maybe I should write one because the, I just, I figured if I was going to teach on the subject, it would be useful to to have this book. So the first edition came out in 2005, and at that time, restaurant reviewing was really big, so there was a huge chapter on restaurant reviewing, and it was all focused on fine dining. And there was a chapter on fiction writing, which are, you know, mostly the most popular genre in food fiction writing is murder mysteries with recipes, um, with great titles, like like The Butter Did It. Um and food bo- food box were just starting out, but I was still a, a print snob then and I thought, well I don't really know what this is and uh where are the gatekeepers, so I just ignored it. And <laughs> that turned out to be a big mistake. So in the second edition I had to write a huge chapter on food blogging, which was in full swing. That was in 2010. And, uh, you know, the pioneer woman was a big um, celebrity blogger then, and she wrote a blurb for my book. And then the third edition came out in 2015. And by then, people were more interested in how to make a living as a food writer and mostly Mm -hmm. especially online they Mm -hmm. want they wanted to know how to make money online with recipes uh, or as content creators so then there was I I had to write about transitioning from a hobby to a business more about photography social media a lot less on restaurant reviewing because with Mm -hmm. the advance of Yelp it just restaurant reviewing has become like a job that like 10 people have yeah. <laughs> um, and then for the 4th edition which comes out on May 25th, um I got rid of the eurocentric focus on food and writers mm-hmm. and I brought in more diverse voices, younger voices. Uh there's a much smaller chapter on restaurant writing, more on making money. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a new chapter on voice because you know, the field has become very crowded these days. And a lot of Mm -hmm. people are writing the same kind of content. And so how do you stand out in a crowded field if you're writing the same kind of content as other
0: people? For me, it comes down to voice. Right. No, that's so important. Um, And, you know, you also have your blog, you also send out a newsletter, you know, why have you gone sort of an independent route with, with your work?
1: Well, I started the blog in 2009 because um, I knew I was going to have to write about food blogging. And Mm -hmm. I felt like if I didn't jump in, I was never going to understand it. So, I mean, I did jump in, but I didn't start a food blog. I started a blog about writing, particularly Mm -hmm. food writing. And at first I did it twice a week, uh, short posts about, whether blogging is journalism, how adapting a recipe doesn't make it yours. It was really fun because in those days, people weren't on social media as much, and so right. I could I would regularly have like 50 or 80 responses, and I would get in like theoretical arguments with people. I remember having a big argument with Shauna Ahern about whether blogging was journalism, all like in the comments going back and forth. (laughs) And uh, Paula Wolfert was one of my first commenters. So that was a it was a really heady time. Um, And then for the newsletter, I started that probably 10 years ago. But but then it was just for anyone who had been a student of mine or a client. Um, But now it has a bigger audience than my blog. And wow. both of them together have been, they kept me on a regular writing schedule, and which is really mm-hmm. important because um, I, I don't want to just um, be an editor and a coach for people. I want to keep my writing practice. And so I've been writing mostly serve, what's called service writing, how-to pieces, opinion pieces. And I bring in a lot of guest posters when they have wisdom to share.
0: Right. And, and, you know, how do you find it now? It's over a decade that you've been kind of writing for yourself, writing directly to readers. What have you gleaned in that time from, from that kind of writing versus writing for publications?
1: Well, you know, the joy of not having a gatekeeper and writing Mm -hmm. whatever you want just can't be underestimated, (laughs) but, um, But you still have to be relevant for people. And um, what I've learned is that uh, this is something I learned as a writer early on. I think when I was doing restaurant reviewing, what I learned was that people may never go to the restaurant, but they still want want to read my review and they wanted to be entertained. Mm -hmm. And... I think I'm still learning about entertaining people. I tend to be very serious, <laughs> and you are too, right? But um, but entertainment is a huge part of writing for people, right? And it, so it it always has to be an element. I'm still figuring that out. I'm still figuring out how to be personal and not just. Mm-hmm talk about what's going on in the industry like how much of myself to reveal right. and of course you know social media only amplifies that issue
0: yeah i think yeah i don't know i hope i'm not serious i hope i don't come off serious really <laughs> the funny, yeah the funny thing is that like i'm not a serious person like as a human being so it's interesting like that my writing that is popular is very serious and it's a little bit frustrating to me because I think I am trying to balance within one audience a few different ideas of what people want from me. Yeah. And so some some people like the personal writing and some people like the like polemical political writing and some people like the more specific food writing about, you know, a specific ingredients or that sort of thing. And it's really hard to make all of those people happy all of the time, <laughs> which, I mean, I guess yeah. the, the answer it's is impossible. it's impossible. Yeah. yeah, it is. But it, it, it is, you know, I find the having direct contact with an audience that wants things from me, pretty challenging most of the time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how I would go. I don't know if I have the ability or the stamina to go on with it for over a decade like you have.
1: Well, I, you know, a lot of what I write is not personal. I think that's how I've been able to handle it. It's like, you know, if I'm writing a blog on, I just, a while ago I wrote a blog on how I noticed that I had a half tablespoon measure in my drawer, but I never see a half tablespoon measure in recipes. And when I do, Mm -hmm. I usually edit it out and put, you know, one and a half teaspoons. And I just, you know, sometimes you just never know if people are going to respond to that or not. And people were all over it and they were telling me, Oh no, they've (laughs) had this tablespoon for years and they always need any recipes. And, it's, it was the most, you know, minor
0: subject. Right. But, um, it got people going. Yeah, it got people going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's it's interesting to talk to you today because while this is coming out in late May, we're talking in late April. And the, you know, the people who are in the essays that are being included in Best American Food Writing 2021 have, you know, been announced in some form. Oh, and
1: yeah, I know't
0: seen that yet <laughs> and you know I wanted to ask you because you wrote about and you wrote a gorgeous and award-winning essay about mangoes for lucky peach in 2016 and then you wrote a blog post that just broke down the process and i I feel like that was such a a genius kind of ahead of its time move to do that because I think it's only in recent times that we've really been having this conversation about like what makes things successful in food media and what makes a a piece you know end up in in an anthology or winning awards and that sort of thing and so I wanted to ask you why you wanted to matter-of-factly break that down for people well, thank you
1: for calling it gorgeous. I appreciate that. And, <laughs> and uh, also thank you for finding that post because, you know, I, I've got thousands of posts now right. going back <laughs> to 20, 2009, so I didn't even remember that one, so I went back and read it. Um, but I think what I wanted to get across is that people tend to think that writing is some kind of magic, that people can just pour things forth and it will be beautiful and fully formed. And that was not my experience writing that piece. That piece took a long time. It's, mm-hmm. And it, it appeared in various guises. And I just want people to know that it's, it's you know, it's work. It's work to get there. Yeah. And also that if you do want to be recognized for your work, a lot of the time you have to, most, almost all the time, you have to apply. And I was so freaked out by the James Beard Awards that I didn't even apply. I didn't even for that piece. I just couldn't get up the nerve. It was just ridiculous. It's like the things you tell yourself are insane sometimes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's true. I mean, how 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 have you, have, has how you perceive awards changed since that time? Um, not really. You have to
1: believe in your work enough to submit awards. And I'm always telling people on social media and in my newsletter, okay, you know, the award deadline is coming up. You can't win (laughs) an award unless you apply. You've got to pay some money. You've got to believe in your work. And that hasn't changed uh, I I don't think there I think there are very few awards where you don't apply. Maybe the Art of Eating Award you don't mm. apply for that, and of course best even best food writing you can submit, you submit. your work yeah.
0: to yeah. it. Um, no, yeah, and I mean it's interesting, you know. The the James Beard Awards are I think the most expensive awards to submit yeah. yourself for. Yeah. And um I don't know if you've ever judged the the writing awards for them, but I have you know, judged
1: them, but not not um journalism. I've judged books for the Beard Awards. Oh, okay.
0: Award. Right. Well it's interesting to me that <laughs> that you know it's people pay so much money to be considered and then the people doing the reading. Aren't paid for that time either, so it's 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 an interesting. I mean, I've written before about how much I I loathe the James Beard Awards, but yes. uh, <laughs> 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 but you know it's it's a yeah it's a it's a difficult thing, and and that's why I appreciated that blog post because I I think that people often do think, like you said, that it's this magical process toward toward writing the the great essay that will that will get attention, and and it's not. It just is plotting Uh, yes (laughs) to get there yeah with a
1: lot of Um, you know self-doubt and putting it away and bring it back out and um yeah yeah just how it is I mean (laughs) I've been a published writer since 1974 and I still go through that
0: and you know I I didn't give you this question because I'm only really I'm considering this right now this week you know that um the idea of being creative and working in a creative field is I think something that we're supposed to always talk about in a very like lofty manner. And your whole, you know, work that you're doing now is about, and have been doing is about breaking that down for people and making it about success and, you know, not shying away from the business end of it. And, you know, I wanted to ask how you kind of balance or decided to balance those things and how you, creativity and, and business, how, how in your mind they kind of fit together. That's a, that's a really good
1: question. Um, business, well, what, I, what I've decided is that there are some people who are entrepreneurs um, and they're business people first. Mm -hmm. And they apply their creativity to their business, whereas food writing, I think, for so long has been like a hobby and not taken seriously and things that people do on the side or they just do it for fun or they do it because they're privileged enough to not worry about whether they're going to get paid for it or how much. Um, That's a whole other kind of thinking um right and so um you can produce the same work but i mean you can you know you can write a recipe and have either point of view but the people who are making a business from it are focused on that they're focused on financial success however they define right. that and i've met i've i've had um people as clients who have made six, high six-figure incomes I've had I've interviewed people who have made high mid six-figure incomes and you know they're just as good as writing a recipe as the people who get paid nothing but but they're entrepreneurial about it
0: right right that's an interesting way of looking at it I think cuz I think I have a lot of guilt about Money in in being a creative person and <laughs> like guilt guilt about thinking of my work as labor and guilt about thinking of my work in in business terms um in a way that like I never did if I if I was selling people cakes or cookies I would never feel this way but because I'm just writing and and as I say it I say just writing you know and so just it, yep yeah <laughs> yep. I'm like is this real work am I supposed to be caring about money is it Gauche of me to need money to live. (laughs) Um, Exactly. Yeah. And and so trying to kind of be honest about these things and and how it all really works, which is, you know, a lot, it's very complicated. Um, It is
1: because money is fraught, especially in mm -hmm. American society, fraught with so many issues. And I think, you know, sometimes I have the privilege sometimes of writing a piece for my own pleasure and getting paid very little for it and I think Mm -hmm. is some is something wrong with me that I do this because at the end of the day it's not my labor isn't being paid for so is that wrong or do I just decide that I'm a privileged person and then I have guilt about that (laughs) (laughs) you can make yourself crazy with this stuff
0: right Right. And in this new edition, in the introduction, you talk about the diversity of voices that have emerged in food writing in the last decade. And, you know, the major writers of color, Black writers who've emerged in this time. And, you know, you yourself could be said to have a, quote unquote, diverse background. So I wanted to ask you how you define diversity. Uh, Thank you. So first,
1: I'll define (laughs) it for the book. So my editor and I spent a lot of time on how we were going to define it. And she was very helpful. So, of course, there's, you know, BIPOC, which means Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. But that's not everybody. So there's also LG... I just looked up the new abbreviation. LGBTQIAAP. Mm-hmm. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, transsexual, queer, questioning intersex asexual ally pansexual got all that yes <laughs> <laughs> so um it, you know i'm trying i that doesn't you know we're leaving out people who are disabled i i know it's not everyone but at least we're enlarging who can write about food and how they write about it and so I tried to describe the intersection of food writing and, and more diversity in the first chapter. Um, and and I, don't, I don't fit into one category. I mean, I present as a white person, and I have the mm-hmm. privilege of a white person. Um, but my parents were Chinese refugees from, who were Iraqi. So um, it's kind of complicated. It, identity for me is a huge topic and i'm endlessly fascinated by it
0: you know and i wanted to ask if you've you know faced i mean you just said you you are a white person with the privileges of a white person but do you think that how how do you view the kind of gatekeeping that occurs in food media and and the fact that we have taken so long to start seeing food, media, more accurately reflect the world at large?
1: Oh, yeah, it's taken a long time. I mean, I (laughs) I graduated from journalism school in in 1974, and it was almost entirely white. And every job I had, the whole staff was almost entirely white, and the writers I hired were almost entirely white. And um, it's just taken forever to... I never questioned it. In the beginning, I mean, it wasn't. We weren't having those kinds of conversations, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's taken a long time to start for the publishing industry to start having the conversation and and to own it that publishing is what eighty five, eighty six percent white, depending on which right. publishing you're talking about. But I think for us, it is. Um, It's just taken a really long time because the gatekeepers were not really aware of how of choosing their own and how their own were always available. I mean, white writers came to me and wanted to be published, Um, and I didn't think about seeking out
0: other kinds of people. Right, right, and longest time. (laughs) and and how did how did that moment of clarity kind of emerge well just in the last few years
1: it's become a lot more obvious that this system has to change and um you know i've had my own understanding about it also uh and and questioning what i could do about it uh last year in honor of um black lives matter i um I I had I said I would take on five new clients who were interested in food writing who were all who are all black uh, for $100 instead of $800 because I know there's this disparity in the income of white people versus black people and so that was you know that was something new for me to do that and it went really well I I had I had really terrific people to work with who were, um, you know, or I could just suggest to them they worked very hard and it was good. It was a good experience. And
0: now I'm trying to figure out what else I can do. Right, right. And, you know, when, how far in advance do you start planning your next edition of the book? Um. Well, they've come out
1: every five years. I guess technically it was supposed to come out last year, but because of the mm-hmm. pandemic, they pushed it. So this one is out every on the sixth year. So, you know, I can keep a file of all the stuff I've forgotten to write about and, <laughs> and how to rethink what I wrote about. Like I, you know, when I first um, when I first got into food writing, I was absolutely bewildered by the Eurocentric nature of it. And it was so foreign Mm -hmm. to me because I didn't know about European food. Um, I was, I didn't have the income to go to fine dining restaurants and eat Mm -hmm. continental food as it was called at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just didn't understand why everyone was so excited about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) um, So we've come a long way from that point.
0: Right, right, right. And, you know, for you, is cooking a political act?
1: Certainly. Um, yeah, because you make decisions, you make decisions. Um, are you going to buy organic? And is mm-hmm. that just for your own health? Or is it for the health of the people who work in the fields and, and for the health of the planet? Uh, can you look beyond yourself and see why that would be a good idea? Um you know, are you eating a plant-based diet to, to for environmental reasons or for your own health? Mm-hmm. Um, are you claiming your food as being from one country or another? Uh, I just had a guest post about uh, that Nandita Godbole, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, wrote about cultural appropriation, and I realized that I had written a recipe for some a chinese dish that my mother made and i was very wrapped up in the memory of how she made it and how delicious it was and um what my memories were as a child eating it and then i realized after reading her post that i i hadn't thought about well is this was this a dish that existed in shanghai and did my mother eat it and is that how she found out about it and what do i know about the Chinese version of this dish, you know i hadn't I hadn't thought about it at all, so it just enlarged my thinking about how to write about food in a way that's more inclusive. Ryan, Well, thank you so much for taking the time out today. It's my pleasure, thank you so much for having me.